Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, I came across an interesting benchmark uh, about Elixir and Erlang's startup times. You know, when I when I think about startup times, I I just, I already know that Elixir and Erlang are slower. <laughs> it's like, I just know it, but I don't have any you know, data behind it. So it was interesting to see this benchmark. And so by default, Elixir and Erlang, they, they start up OTP. You know, that's why I, that's why I like this language, right? They start up OTP, but that can be some overhead when you're just trying to start a quick little program. Like say you just want to like a, a CLI program that does some simple input output kind of stuff. Probably don't need OTP. So Frank Conlith, who I regard as the nerves master, uh, he provided a quick benchmark of starting Elixir and Erlang without OTP. So I've got a link out where he has some screenshots, but I'll distill it for you. It's basically on par with Ruby startup. It's slower than Python, but the condition here is that it's not starting OTP, right? This is just straight up language interpreter kind of stuff, right? The, the basic VM, but not the OTP stuff, the extra OTP stuff. And so a little history on that is that this is actually uh, Frank using Joe Armstrong's C project. Uh, and in that C project, S-E-E project, he disables a lot of that extra OTP stuff. So if you want to dive into that, you're welcome to. I, I thought that was just a really cool little bit of history there too, a uh, little bit of knowledge sharing on benchmarks, and then just interesting to see like where where things stand today as far as like language startup times. So yeah, just about on par, but a little bit slower than Ruby. But both Ruby and Erlang are slower than Python when it comes to like raw startup time. We're still talking like really fast, you know, when it comes like relative to things, but like comparative to to, to Ruby and Python, only a little slower than Ruby and both Ruby and Elixir are much slower than Python. Yeah. And I think you made a good point where like if you're building a CLI where it's seriously just initiate this thing, execute commands and shut down that is something where you don't want everything else, probably. You probably don't want everything else. You want it to just be as fast as possible. Or if you're trying to build function as a service where I get an HTTP request, I just need to start something up, execute this command really quickly, and then shut it down. Like, yeah, you don't want the whole beam, everything, the application startup with their dependency order, all everything going, and all the supervision trees, because you're probably not doing that kind of work. So it's just really cool when we can fit Elixir into more situations. So... I love that he's sharing that work and exploration in public. And next up, Livebook Desktop is getting the internals completely revamped. And Wojtek Mock asked people to try out the nightly builds and share your feedback. So if you're not exactly sure, you're thinking Livebook. Well, Livebook Desktop is a separate thing. It's a launcher that only works on Mac and Windows, but it shows up in that little system tray and it makes it really easy to start and stop your live books and access and work with live books locally. So it's a really easy way to just jump in and get going with live books. We talked in more depth with Voitech about live book desktop in episode 113. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes where you can really get into it. And, and we talked then about how it was using an approach like burrito to wrap up all of these things into this small, self-contained, executable kind of thing. So yeah, when they talk about revamping the internals, it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that. And if they had some things they've learned from the process and taking some different directions, I don't know. All right, next item. So this last week, we mentioned the ability to send Slack messages from Livebook, which is 
pretty cool. Not wanting to be left behind, Basil Nouvellet. I'm sorry if I crushed your name. Basil created a Discord integration for Livebook 2. So if you're more in the Discord camp, a lot of folks are, Kino has support for that now as well, which is, that's pretty cool. And next, Lars Veekman helped the Changelog podcast add chapters to their MP3 recordings. So Lars wrote a blog post about using Elixir with the ID3 format to support these chapters features. And this blog post is actually hosted on the Changelog website. So if you have any interest in doing MP3 file manipulation and chapter headings and things like that, this is a really great starting point. It's neat to just see all the binary pattern matching and the way he's able to do that. And then talking about building the API interface and why he made those choices. It's very cool. All right, next up, uh, Andrea Leopardi is on a quest, it seems like. He's just uh, knocking everything out right now. First up, he is updating the Elixir DBG. Remember, he's on the Elixir core team. He's updating DBG to print out Boolean expression results. He has a little video demonstrating that. But the idea is is that if you have like a like a case statement where you have like ands and ors and those double pipes and double ampersands, it's kind of difficult sometimes to, to, to determine which of these expressions is what allowed it through. So it's going to actually print out which ones evaluated and how they evaluated, which is pretty helpful. So that was one item. Another item is that he's also announced that he's writing an Elixir book about network programming. You know, hindsight, I could have seen this coming now <laughs> because he's got all those videos that was going through like some of this really cool network programming concepts like uh, Gen UDP, Gen TCP. What is those? What, what was that called? Proto hackers? Is that what that was? Anyway, he's got some some videos that, that go into this in, in depth and it sounds like he's working with Prague Prague on developing this book with them. So look out for that in the future. He is absolutely right, by the way, in, in that Elixir is, in fact, quite amazing when it comes to network programming, which is maybe an undersold feature, uh, an undersold benefit of using something like Elixir and, and Erlang. I mean, pattern matching is, is a big wow factor, right, in, in Elixir and Erlang, but pattern matching, you know, helps a lot with network programming as well. But just the asynchronous and the actor model, I know it's not technically actor model, but We'll just call it that for now. That programming paradigm in Elixir and Erlang, it just makes network programming so much easier. I, I love it. Every time I do it, I'm, I feel enabled. I feel empowered. So I'm very happy to see that he's going to start writing a book for that. It makes sense when you think how Erlang was actually created, you know, to do a lot of these networking problems, like as a router. It's like, yes, that is one of its core design goals was to be good at that. And I do wonder, we'll probably have to talk with Andrea to find out, but I wonder if him playing with the proto hackers is like what got him interested is like, this is really cool. Yeah. Which came first? I'm going to create a book about this. <laughs> yeah. Which came first? Exactly. <laughs> and next up, Mike Clark with Prague Prog shared that they are working on a new live view video series and they reached a major milestone, which is that they're ready to start filming. The course has been redesigned for Phoenix 1.7 and LiveView 0.18, which had the, the significant changes with like verified routes and the newer ways of doing the function components. And it includes sections on those new function components, live sessions, presence, and JS commands. The reason I think this is important is, you know, it's not something that I'm going to be paying for myself to use. But having professional instructional material like this available to the community is important because if I want to argue at my company that, oh, yes, we should be using Elixir and there are training materials available, like being able to show, yes, there are 
high quality training materials available that the company could probably pay for to help bring people into Elixir and get them trained up quickly or more quickly than having, you know, throwing a book at them and say, hey, read this. That is a great resource just to be able to argue that we are okay to bring in Elixir into our company and to this project or whatever. So I'm glad to see that. All right. Next up, Temple was updated to work well with Heeks templates. All right. Well, if you don't remember what Temple is, Temple is an Elixir DSL for writing HTML and SVG. That's its tagline there. And so to describe it even further, if you're familiar with slim templates in like Ruby, it's like you're you're writing in Ruby, you know, the tag UL, and then you put the contents of what's inside of that UL HTML tag in, in that block. Right. And so the same thing in Elixir. So you you import temple and you write UL and you gotta you do UL do and you you just start writing your blocks in there. So it's just a different way to writing writing HTML and Temple is just the DSL for handling that. We interviewed Mitch Hanberg on this this library back in episode 92. So go check that out if you want to hear more about it. And I can't remember, I might be wrong, but I think we even talked about Heeks with him back then in that episode. So I think we're seeing the fruits of, of his labor now in that Temple is now compatible with all the modern Heeks templates, Phoenix templates and components, all that kind of architecture now. So that's really great news. If you're interested in bringing a little bit more of that HTML writing experience away from big HTML strings, right? All your Heeks files, really, and into Elixir language stuff, Temple might be a cool option for you. And last, Ash Framework announced Ash Authentication. So Zach Daniel talked with us in episode 123 about Ash and how it models resources. And so this is another module or an addition to the framework this one is all around authentication. So it says, Ash authentication allows you to authenticate users in your Elixir application using a simple DSL on your Ash resources. So that sounds pretty cool because I know one of the things when you're building a new app and you just have to first get past, all right, can I have a user? Can they be logged in? And you have to do all these work ahead of time just to get to the point where you're, you can play with the idea that you really want to explore. All that yak shaving up front. <laughs> I dread it sometimes. Yeah. So it's nice that we have like the Phoenix generator to do that and get you like very quickly past that point with live view or dead views. But now, now you've got it with Ash too. So that's really exciting. Just to go into a little bit of what this includes, it includes passwords. It includes OAuth 2.0, includes confirmation and reset flows. They say extensible live view components predefined configuration for auth zero and github sign in with more coming soon and then lastly maybe a real kicker for some folks is that it uh, works without and with phoenix so if you just happen to have a, a simple plug app maybe yeah this is this might be a cool solution for you without having to build build it all on your own and that's it for the news elixir and phoenix are incredible they make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Mayel. Mayel, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that you could join us because in the greater 
tech space. We just need to acknowledge that things have been happening with Twitter, but separate from Twitter, it's caused a lot more people to have focus and attention on what's called the Fediverse or Activity Pub or Mastodon, or people are using all these different terms. And you are actually working on a project called Bonfire, which is written in Elixir and is one of these Fediverse instances. And so we're excited to be able to learn more about how this works, how Elixir is playing into this project, kind of where it comes from, and learn more about all of that. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, I'm a bit of a nomad originating from Europe, but currently in the far north of a subtropical New Zealand. It's really nice. It's summer here right now. Yeah, I've been a developer and a bit of a generalist uh, since the 90s. I mean, I was still a teenager then. And so I started with HTML, a bit of JavaScript, PHP. In 2006, I actually saw Ruby on Rails appear in the scene and it seemed really like nice. I uh, liked the syntax and wanted a better toolkit, but I wasn't comfortable with some of the drawbacks in terms of performance and also in terms of how much was kind of dictated by the framework and how you had to follow these patterns. And it just didn't feel flexible. So I stuck with PHP for a while. And then recently, after the Fediverse started... Um, appearing before it got big. But uh, Mastodon actually is the main Fediverse app because they started before the ActivityPub uh, standard, uh, which the Fediverse is based on, appeared and kind of fed into the process of creating ActivityPub. And at that point, I really wanted to develop in this space, but I wanted to do it with more modern uh, tools and uh, tools that would allow creating apps that last into the future that aren't as fragile, I would say, as, for example, building in the JavaScript and Node ecosystem. So I started researching different tools, different stacks, and came across Elixir and really, really liked it. And so, yeah, I've been uh, using it, learning it hands-on since then. So you you set out, you're like, I, I'm looking for I'm looking for another language, and you found like a bunch of them, and Elixir being one of them, and you're like, ah, this... This one's this one's it. Usually, when I talk to folks, it's like, "How did you find Elixir?" It's usually like, "Oh, well, a friend, you know, showed it to me, or and I was just amazed, or some other social connection." There, it sounds like you were like, "No, I, I've got, I have a mission here. We're getting the most, the stablest, you know, <laughs> language here with the modern toolkit, all that stuff." And you and you chose Elixir. Is that does that sound right? That's right. And I actually wrote up a big um, paper about it, um, arguing my choice because um, I had been brought on by Moodle at the time to build a new federated app for educators to share uh, resources at the time. And so, yeah, I sort of went on that mission and wrote up why this was the stack to use. Moodle is a web app that is quite old, I think almost 20 years, that is written in PHP and more and more JavaScript uh, on the front end these days, which is for educators and, let's say, educational institutions like universities to create online courses, MOOCs, they call them. Massive open online courses, I think. Massively online. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's really cool. It's an open source learning platform that has been around a long time. So you started doing something with Moodle, but not with PHP and not with the JavaScript framework. So is that where Bonfire started? 
Yeah, I'd say so. It started on the on the edges of that uh, project. I, I actually wanted to build a federated app before joining Moodle uh, and saw that there was more and more indie developers starting similar projects. And the ActivityPub standard is actually pretty simple, but the whole package of what it takes to build a federated app involves much more dealing with the JSON schemas, uh, which are called activity streams, uh, and all these different aspects. And I saw the need for a library that would be, um, you know, maintained by several projects and shared uh, with that maintenance effort. And so that's really what I wanted to work on. And so while I was at Moodle, we started a project called Commons Pub, which was to be this underlying layer, this library. So we mentioned a couple times this term federated. And I wonder if you can give us a little bit of a high-level view for those of us who aren't familiar with this term and what this represents. Like, what does that mean when we talk about these things being federated? Well, federated is one aspect of decentralized. Uh, There's actually a great diagram that shows different ways that something can be decentralized, uh, which also includes distributed, which is more common with peer-to-peer apps. And federated means that there's still nodes that act on behalf of several users. And, you know, it's not centralized, but some of the processing and storage is delegated to these nodes that help connect users. And so federated web apps, federated social networks uh, like Mastodon specifically use a web standard that was created as part of a W3C working group which specifies an architecture of inboxes and outboxes that can receive data in JSON and a way for users to follow other users, other inboxes, uh, other outboxes, and subscribe to their activities. So it's a push-based model. You can still optionally fetch to see the latest activities from a specific user, but you have a list of people you follow and their activities are pushed to you. Okay, so if I understand this right, I can have multiple different servers written in different languages even, but they're all agreeing to a protocol. And some of that schema is like the data exchange format and it's in JSON. And so they have this protocol where they can say, and I think it's kind of become part of the activity pub where it's like the ability to publish about the idea of activities. So that could be represented as a blog post or as something like a tweet or different things that just represent activity. And then these different servers, different languages, whatever, can in a non-centralized way just kind of coordinate with each other and share information about users on their systems and what's happening and what kind of activities are happening on those servers. Is that right? That's right. And actually, a really good comparison to understand ActivityPub is email. Email is a federated system, and it works very similarly with inboxes and outboxes and servers that you know can store the inboxes of many different users. But what ActivityPub adds on top, and that's a separate W3C standard called ActivityStreams, it's a JSON specification for how to format uh, activities, right? So email is just text or, you know, attachments. But with activity streams, there's a specific way to say, this is the actor, the user who created this. This is the verb of what they're doing, you know, like they're creating something or they're following something, they're liking something. 
And this is the object. And the object can be just something like a tweet, or it can be a document, or it can be a location. And then, you know, it, it's a pretty complex specification. Like it's pretty big, but most implementations don't use the half of it. Uh, but also it's extensible and you can add other JSON schemas or create your own on top of it, right? Because it's based on uh, what's called JSON LD. LD stands for linked data. And that's kind of a whole other world. You might have heard of a project called Solid that is using JSON LD as well to try and create a more decentralized internet. So that's an unrelated project to an activity pub. But while Activity Streams is based on JSON-LD, it doesn't require actually using linked data. So most implementations don't include a linked data parser and just read the JSON and know what schemas to expect, which is actually easier than dealing with linked data. Yeah, I've intersected with JSON-LD for creating Phoenix SEO. So that's that's a lot of what search engines are looking for, for that kind of detailed information of what this page represents, like a recipe, you know, or a movie a showing time, like for movie theaters. And yeah, there's older stuff that they'll look for, like open graph tags or meta tags and, and stuff like that. But the more modern approach seems to be script tags in the head of your HTML with JSON linking data in there. <laughs> so it's pretty cool to see how that how that relates to ActivityPub, because those are kind of communicating similar things. It's just not about sharing that. It's about getting a search engine to parse it. <laughs> well, cool. All right. So that I think that gives us a good primer on like what federation means, the landscape kind of means, what the protocol is essentially doing. What is Bonfire Networks then? Well, Bonfire is kind of difficult to explain, but to a technical crowd, I would say that it's a framework for building federated apps an extensible framework where there can be different modules providing different functionality and you can swap those out and fork them. So it's not a monolith, it's not a mono repo, but from a user point of view, it's also an app or a set of different apps, depending on what extensions you install to do social networking, right? So it's not just a framework in the sense of Phoenix where you have the building blocks and you build your own apps, you have to you have to write them yourself. There's a bunch of ready-to-use extensions, but it's also a lot of work has gone into the, the framework aspects to make uh, it easier and quicker to build federated apps, to make them more customizable by people who set up instances, but also by end users, and to interconnect all these extensions so they talk to each other rather than be completely independent. So compared to uh, apps like Mastodon or Peertube or Mobilizon, which are all ActivityPub apps, which do uh, Twitter-like functionality or YouTube-like functionality or meetup.com type functionality, they're great. But from a user point of view, it becomes kind of a hassle to have to sign up and maintain accounts on all these different platforms. And you have to choose an instance for each platform and log in separately and kind of remember to check your notifications there. Or So it's kind of a pity when you have ActivityPub, which is a shared standard for these apps to be completely independent from each other. So with an extensible framework, the idea is that you can sort of have events and your videos and your photos and your posts and your blog posts and even like your uh, mini websites and all these things 
in the same place on one server that you manage. Gotcha. So, so that sounds like a lot of like real, real flexibility. Okay. So first of all, it's interesting that your, your audience isn't necessarily the typical Twitter user. Currently, you kind of have to be technical to set up your own instance. You know, at the very least, you need to know how to set up DNS and sign up to a, to a host and, you know, maybe do a few command lines. Uh, you know, we make that as easy and simple as we can with a bunch of glue. But that's something that we're working on and planning to work on together with other open source and federated projects, including people working on a cooperative hosting infrastructure. So we, we would really like it to be easy for non-technical or less technical users to set up and manage their own instance. And, you know, often setting up an instance is the easiest part. But what happens when your Postgres database gets corrupted or something like that happens, right? It's the, it's the maintenance and making sure that your backups are set up and working correctly. Yeah, so I think that in an ideal world, you could sign up with a member of a cooperative federation of hosting providers. So maybe you choose one in your area. It's a kind of point and click setup wizard online, just like with SaaS products. But then when there's a problem or you need to do something more advanced, there is a team that you can contact and that can help you out. So in terms of Elixir in this space, I've heard of Pleroma as being discussed as one of these services. I think it's like a Mastodon instance, but it's written in Elixir. But is there any relationship with Bonfire and Pleroma or anything like that? Well, I mentioned that in the early days uh, when I was at Moodle and we uh, set out to create a library that could be used by several projects to do federation. So at the time, we forked Pleroma and extracted their uh, federation code into a library. Our hope was that they would adopt that library too and share maintenance and that other federated projects using Elixir would do the same. That hasn't really happened so far. Some newer, smaller projects uh, have been looking at the library to get involved. Yeah, that, that's the only connection. Before the show, you'd also mentioned another server, which is, or a fork, is called Acoma. It's a code base that's written in Elixir that lets you stand up a Mastodon-compatible server, right? That's right. So Acoma yeah, is a recent fork of Pleroma that is... Uh, seen more maintenance, I think, and has a different uh, team uh, behind it and is written in Elixir. I think they still have a Vue or React-based front-end. And yeah, they have a, a client API that is compatible with Mastodons, which is quite useful because then you can use various iOS or Android apps uh, that are clients for it. We should mention that Mastodon is written in Ruby on Rails. But then there's other projects like Mobilizon is also in Elixir, and they're focused on events and calendars and kind of like meetup.com or Facebook events. But there's like literally hundreds now of activity pub implementations at various stages of maturity and filling different niches. So let's come back to Bonfire then. Because there are all these different instances or different code bases that are coming at it from different directions. What direction are you coming at it for Bonfire? Like what were you saying, this is what I want to explore, the I, the idea or the area that was most interesting that you said, that's what I, I kind of want to focus on and see what I can do that's unique in that area. Yeah, I would say 
two main things which have the same underlying values or goal, which is the user should be in control and the user should be able to have a safe experience, a safe interactions with others, and also what we call convivial interactions and experience, which has a whole sort of political philosophy behind it, but basically is doing the opposite of what Twitter or Facebook might do. <laughs> Not just by contradiction, but because it doesn't come from the same values of extracting value and extracting profit from users as much as possible. And, you know, in the worst case, that means manipulating users or, you know, all these algorithms that show you things that might outrage you because that leads to more eyeballs and clicks. And the other thing that flows from the same goal is not being a product, but being a toolkit, being something where users can mold it to fit their needs, to fit their values and culture, to fit their goals. So, you know, you might even disable the social extension if, you, if you're not interested in doing social networking. Just use it as a collaborative to-do list, which is one of the other extensions we have, or use it as a forum uh, with sort of slower and longer form posts. So it's really not being like, Twitter was cool. Let's have a open source federated Twitter. It's like, no, like what are the tools that I actually need, but then not imposing my view and my needs on others and being like, here are the tools I built to build what I want, use them to, to do what you want. All right, I'm I'm understanding Bonfire a lot a lot more now. So it's it's a toolkit for a variety of communities with a variety of needs. So I want to I want to like talk maybe about one or two of these kinds of communities. Let's ignore Twitter for now because I I feel like a lot of folks will know what that that community is about, right? Micro blogging kind of thing. I think people may get hung up on that and think that's all it can do as well. Right, and it's not, and it's not. So let's let's talk about some of these other like other kinds of extensions that Bonfire can do. I see here something about Kanban, right? I, I would never dream of doing Kanban on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously this is a different kind of domain. Tell me about like, what does Bonfire do? How can it help me? And, and what's, what, is, what is this Kanban extension doing for me? So it's helping you uh, manage a to-do list, basically. You know, Kanban is a typical hello world app in many uh, languages <laughs> or frameworks. Yeah. But what this does differently is that it uh, talks over activity pubs. So you can have a collaborative to-do list, your coworkers or your family or friends, or you, know, you, you can have various lists to manage different aspects of your life. And those are federated, which is also interesting in the workplace because you know, people more and more are involved in different organizations or projects, uh, you know, especially if you're freelancing. So being able to participate in the Kanban of different projects from one place, from your instance, from your your Bonfire app, without having to log in to these different places for each project that you're involved in. Okay, so that's interesting. So, so another extension that we'll gloss over is the social one. So that that's the Twitter one, right? The, the Mastodon kind of functionality there. I think there's another one here I see called BreadPub. What is what is this one about? Yeah, so this one is kind of like a classifieds list. You know, you can compare it with Craigslist maybe in its early days. 
but we call it offers and needs. So it's a way to post when you're offering something like I've got a bunch of uh, boxes of spare oranges for my garden. Does anyone want them? Or, you know, that can be for free or it can be like, I've got a, a bunch of tools in my tool shed that I don't use half the time if anyone wants to borrow them or trade them, things like that. And it can also be like, oh, I need a size 12 screwdriver. Does anyone have one in the area? <laughs> That's where uh, it becomes really interesting to have this extensible app and, and a federated app is that this is a specific app where you can go and browse offers or needs in your area. You see them on a map or whatever. But also every time somebody makes a post, you know, places a pin on the map with a need that also appears in the social feed. Right. So it can go out to your followers or it can go out to people who follow a topic. And that's a different extension, which might be related to your city. So you can follow all the offers in your city, uh, things like that. And also what's interesting about both the Kanban and Offers and Needs extensions that they use value flows as their vocabulary. So value flows, you can compare it with activity streams, which we mentioned earlier, the JSON specification for social activities. Value flows is a project which has been working for years to create a specification for economic activities. And it's very extensive and flexible. It was created by people coming from the enterprise uh, ERP world, which, you know, there's huge commercial products in that space, which in a way have to be federated or ideally should be federated because it's companies throughout a whole supply chain who have to interact with uh, product orders and things like that. But in many cases, they're not federated and one ERP software has to get its input from scanning a bunch of faxes that have been sent by a different ERP product in a different company, right? So out of that challenge came this project of creating a vocabulary for standardizing economic activities. And this is what we use, well, a very small part of that vocabulary for these apps. But we have many other projects in the works or on the wish list in that space. So I just want to say there are a number of different extensions that we're not even talking about here. I think we can include this in somehow in the show notes, but you're mentioning we, we are doing this. I would love to hear how big of a group of people are working on this. Is this something people can join and help out and say, yeah, this is an interesting thing for me. And hey, I get to do an elixir. Is that something that people can jump in on? Yeah, definitely. The core team has sort of gone up and down between two and six or seven people. But yeah, there, there have been a lot of contributors popping in and out wanting to help like that. Not many of them, unfortunately, who already know Elixir. So it's been a bit of a challenge or, you know, it's been interesting too having people start to learn Elixir or jump into it or jump into the JavaScript parts, which are, are very small, but uh, add to the, to the UX uh, in the code base. But we're definitely open to people joining our Matrix chat to, to discuss that or directly in GitHub issues. So I was looking at some of the libraries you guys have built here, and I really liked the idea of Flexto. I've always thought that this idea of dynamic schemas sometimes has a place in certain types of applications. So I was curious what you guys are using that for and how it works. 
Yeah, so Flexto is a config-based way to create or extend Ecto schemas. And we use it because when you install extra extensions in Bonfire, they need to interact with each other. So that means foreign keys, uh, connecting tables of different extensions. And so, yeah, we do that in the config through Flexto, adding foreign keys. But Flexto can also be used and is really handy, actually, to add virtual keys as well, virtual fields uh, to Ecto uh, when you want to uh, store something in a change set or something like that. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to add that to the actual schema because it's kind of a context layer field rather than a data layer field. I could see how that would be a really hard problem, like different plugins require changes to schemas and how they could define that. Just my brain probably would have exploded and quit right there. That sounds like a hard problem. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the Elixir toolkit is really nice. Like we use Mix to manage extensions. So extensions are simple dependencies added with Mix directly from their Git repos at the moment, considering setting up a Hex server for extensions in the future. Yeah, we use all of the tooling. Of course, sometimes uh, our use cases are, well, often our use cases are not directly supported because we use something similar to Poncho architecture, which uh, Nerves uses. And Elixir usually supports either mixed dependencies, mostly from Hex, or umbrella <laughs> architecture. Uh, and so what we're doing is kind of in the, in the middle of that. So I'm trying to figure out how to delicately ask this, because I know that some people have struggled when they've tried to host their Mastodon instances, which is written in Ruby and Rails. And I don't mean to throw shade, but I know that people have struggled because it requires a great deal of RAM and the system requirements can be rather unwieldy. And if you're trying to do this for fun and just for like you and your group of friends, and maybe that group starts to grow a little bit faster than you anticipated, it starts to fall over. Because this is written in Elixir, I'm wondering if the dynamics are different and what you can share about how Elixir plays into the strengths of this type of server. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, not only because of the difference in resource use between Ruby on Rails itself and Elixir and Phoenix, but also because Mastodon requires a lot of other dependencies, such as Sidekick for managing... um, a queue, Elasticsearch or search, and several others uh, I don't recall. Whereas in Bonfire, you just need Postgres and Elixir. Optionally, we do use uh, Maily search for search uh, indexing, and that's a Rust-based uh, search, which is really efficient, but that's optional. But we use Oban for the queue and PubSub, and you know, it's all, most of the tooling we need is directly in Elixir. And so, yeah... I've successfully run Bonfire on a Raspberry Pi with several users. You know, compiling might be a bit slow. If you cannot cross-compile outside of the Pi, it runs great. That's really cool. Yeah, so you can have your, this is our family activity server. Like, this is everything we're doing and your your chats. And yeah, that, that's kind of a fun idea. Yeah, down the road in the future, I, I really would like to have a way to host your instance on a Raspberry Pi or even on your computer and, and use it offline. So you can imagine using it in a festival or in a school and, and you know, it's offline just with the people there. 
but then you can optionally have it go online occasionally and sync, uh, you know. So in, in that way, it would be similar to going back to the email comparison. It would be similar to IMAP, where all of your messages are synced to your device and then your email app, instead of using something like Gmail, uh, webmail, you use a, a local app on your computer and all of your emails are there even when you're offline. So I, I like that you compare it to email because I think a lot of us just get that, right? That, oh, we all have these different email servers and I'm able to send a message through the email server I happen to connect to and it gets to you and you get it. And it's, it feels very transparent, right? It's like, that's just how it works. So I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the advantages or challenges even of the federated network, because like what happens when one instance goes down, you know, do, does that mean that even though I'm connected to this server and it's fine, but my friend's server, it's down. Does that mean I no longer see activity from him or has that already been replicated to mine? Like that email has already made its way to my inbox. So I still have that copy. Like, what is that like? Yeah, that's exactly it. Your server has a copy of all the activities of the people you follow, as long as they've already been pushed to you. And that happens right after they post it. So the only issue is if their server goes down and they're following you, they won't see what you're posting until their server comes back up. And as long as your implementation of ActivityPub has a retry policy, eventually it will reach them. So, you know, that's one of the challenges of like correctly implementing ActivityPub and and why I see the need for uh, shared libraries to do these things right. And another challenge with uh, federated networks, uh, like we see in email, is spam. With social networking, it's not just spam, but also trolls. So that's a challenge. And, you know, of course, the first approach to that is being able to block, you know, either individual users or entire instances, if it's a rogue instance. But also what is very common in the, in the Fediverse is that there is a kind of expectation of responsibility and moderation so even if an instance isn't rogue but you know they haven't set up a moderation team uh, who is available enough or cares enough uh, to correctly moderate their instance uh, other instances will quickly block it and and you know be in touch and say please get in order because there's too much trolling or too much spam coming from your instance what are some of the advantages of a federated network, like over a centralized one? There's advantages uh, in a federated work network over centralized networks, but also over distributed networks, I would say. Before getting involved in the Fediverse and ActivityPub, I also looked at other solutions. And there's one that I really like, which actually comes out of New Zealand. And this was before I moved here. It's called Secure Scuttlebutt, SSB for short. And that's a peer-to-peer network. It uses distributed hash tables, not blockchain. And it's really cool. It was created by uh, people who lived on sailboats. Uh, and so they had the use case of wanting to do social networking while they were on the boat without internet. And then when they come into port, it all syncs up, you know, and uh, it syncs through your through your friends and their friends. So it's a sort of a two-level, le- two two-hop distribution of uh, activities. And that's really cool. But it's the challenges of that are mainly to do with onboarding. You have to download a specific app 
For now, it mostly works on desktop rather than mobile because it's pretty resource intensive. It has to store all the data uh, locally and you have to be well-connected enough so that data does reach you. So really the advantage of ActivityPub on over that is that it's web-based. You know, you go to a website, you sign up, it's what people expect. And so it, it grew much bigger and much quicker. Not just these last days with, with the Twitter events, but over the last few years, it's been growing a lot. And the other advantage is around moderation. When you're a distributed social network, every user kind of has to do their own moderation uh, because there's no nodes uh, that can do that for you. Of course, there's then, or there could be ways to have shared lists, sort of similar to what ad blocks do. And that's something I actually want to work on for Bonfire so that instances can share lists of instances or users they're blocking and kind of lower the amount of labor that each individual instance needs to do. You know, the advantages of uh, federated networks over centralized ones are pretty obvious, I would say. You know, one is the ability to scale horizontally. So in terms of infrastructure and cost, you know, you don't need to have millions and and go on the stock market or get a billionaire investor. People can run instances, you know, on their own hardware or using some pocket money or, you know, bigger instances often are crowdfunded and members donate to share that cost. What I think is interesting about that is then you, you're also changing the financial model, which you talked about, because then it's not about, well, really our customers are advertisers right? Because it is self-hosted in many cases, or like little groups will get together and say, Hey, we have an instance that represents a shared thing that we care about, like a topic or something that we kind of group around. You can take away that whole advertising aspect, which I find interesting as well. Yeah. There's really a different culture in the Fediverse and even self-promotion, you know, on your feed is kind of hardly tolerated. Promoting a product is not, you know, so it's not only that there's no advertising, it's it's almost there's no commercial promotion and it's, it's really refreshing. Well, we're about out of time, but I wanted to talk about where Bonfire is today and where you're going next. Like if someone comes and says and goes and checks it out today, what are they going to find? Are they going to find something that's ready to deploy and play with or... Is this alpha? Is it beta? Like what, kind of where do you feel that you are right now with Bonfire Networks? Yeah, it's beta in terms of the core framework and the social functionality. And then a lot of the other extensions, other use cases such as um, Kanban are sort of in development or alpha. And they're kind of pending until we release a 1.0 of the core and social functionality. That should be coming in a matter of weeks, let's say. It's like that kind of falls into our, like, what's next? It sounds like that 1.0 is is quite close. So our audience is people who are already interested in Elixir. You mentioned that people are coming and interested in helping out, but they may not have Elixir skills. But maybe we can marry something up here, like where we have Elixir people, maybe they're interested in this. And like, hey, I've always wanted to build my own social network, the idea of it. But uh, I don't want to build it all by myself. And, you know, it's like it's, it's fun to be able to jump into something with people already have an incredible foundation there. Yeah, totally. I and mean, that's why I was really excited to come on to the podcast. I'd love to see uh, Elixir folks 
you know, join in, try out the code base, give feedback, you know, get involved if, if you want to, whether that's building a new extension for a whole use case nobody thought about, or whether that's jumping into getting the Federation library more uh, robust, everything is welcome. Well, how can people get in touch with you? What is the best way to do that? The easiest way would be either the chat on Matrix or mentioning us on the Fediverse at bonfire at indieweb.social. And if people want to jump into the project, where would they find that? Is that on GitHub or somewhere else? Yeah, it's currently on GitHub, unfortunately. Um, we're waiting for a couple of projects who are working on federated Git forges. Oh, interesting. To move over to that, yeah. There has been an effort with ActivityBuff. So not Git, not GitLab, where you could self-host a GitLab. You're talking about like a whole separate Fediverse source code repository. Yeah, so there's a Git-T, which is a, a GitLab-like software written in Go. And some people are working on the Git-T code base to implement ActivityPub-based federations. So my Git-T instance can federate with yours, and you can use uh, one account and one server to access all the Git projects you're working on. So kind of getting the advantages of something centralized like GitHub, but with an open source and decentralized aspect to it. Well, that's really cool. Well, thank you, Mayel, for talking with us about what you've been building and what as a community has already been built up around this Bonfire Networks. Beyond that, just in this whole idea of the Fediverse and ActivityPub. So thank you for also helping us get a better understanding of what some of these terms mean that we've been hearing about. But we, if we haven't been active in that space, it's a lot of new technology and a lot of new uh, terms. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to see you all in the Fediverse. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.